0: Can I listen to your podcast? Welcome everyone to Middle School, uh, episode three now. Dario, how do you feel about getting to episode three? Massive achievement. There we go. Um, yeah, we've kind of rebranded as well. We are no longer Middle School Music, uh, all spelled out with a K in the middle. We are now MDL SKL. Uh, so a kind of cooler way to say middle school. Keeping the swag. There we go. There we go. So what are we talking about today, Dario? There's there's uh, New Music Friday, as always. Um, what, what's captured your interest today in the music industry? So for me, really, it's about the death of the record store. That's a big, weighty topic and has a lot of implication on jobs, real estate, and the music industry itself. For sure. You know, I was
1: walking in the city a couple weeks back and such a polarizing image. I saw an HMV record store right next to Waterstones bookstore derelict and shut down.
0: It's crazy, isn't it, how much things have changed in terms of the, the record store. Um, you know, the bookstores, while they are derelict and a lot of them are going uh, out of business, they have kind of pivoted and they have maintained some kind of prevalence and some kind of uh, place in modern kind of retail. Uh, just walking through King's Cross this morning, uh, I did manage to see a Waterstones that was quite busy uh, today. But yet, if you were to tell me, where could you find a record store that's likely to have people in it uh, in London or in any other major city? I'm not quite sure I'd know where to look. Well, it's crazy. You know, HMV, Virgin Records
1: or Virgin Megastore, they've, they've closed down internationally. HMV shut 27 stores this year in the UK, including their flagship store on Oxford Circus, which was
0: actually first established in 1921. It's crazy, isn't it? Almost 100 years of history, and it's been wiped out in the last probably, what, 10, 15 years?
1: But it's about the experience. You know, for me, it was the most exciting thing, and it still is, walking into a record store. The smell, the endorphin rush, the big displays. You know, you had... particularly when you were younger, limited cash and you had to make one big pick Hmm. and it was, is it album A or is it album B? And sometimes you'd get a lemon and sometimes you'd be happy and you'd sit with that album for weeks, maybe months and if you're lucky, you would go in and, and buy another one.
0: Yeah, I remember going through to see kind of what the new releases were in the record store, but then also seeing uh, artists that I might not have heard of or albums that I might not have known were being released, flipping through that kind of catalog, that experience of actually shifting one record after another, after another, after another, and actually seeing who the artists were that were in that same category and maybe coming across an artist that I hadn't heard of. Um, and then taking it up to the front or in HMV, they used to have these things where you could like put in a number and you could hear the album, the listening, the, station. the listening stations, yeah, exactly. And kind of getting to that listening station and, and having that whole experience in headphones that, you know, were probably too big for my little ears and all yeah. of that. Mom, well, my ears are pretty big, but hey, um, and kind of that whole experience has, has really shifted, but I do believe there could have been a salvation, right? There could have been another path for record stores to take. Well, I love that you
1: say that because I couldn't agree more. For me a fond memory was I was in Times Square in New York 15 I think it was 15 years ago. There was still a Virgin Mega Store and just the experience and the spectacle of the of the store was was awesome. There were aspiring hip hop artists waiting outside, you know, handing out their demos because they wanted to be heard. You know, you never knew who was going to walk into that store. Now those artists do that at small concert venues and sure we have SoundCloud and the likes, but the experience overall was something
0: that was just so special. Yeah, and I mean, I'm an avid reader as well, and I'll still go into the bookshop, kind of go around looking at different books, picking up books, having that kind of feel of interaction with the written word. And yet there's nothing on the equivalent from that kind of music experience, right? We're here in a podcast studio that Local Globe has been nice enough to kind of lend to us, But I think that that's a missed opportunity, right? More and more people are becoming creative and there's no real simple uh, channel for people to have that experience. I look at a company like, um, I think it's called Pirate Studios that's kind of growing up in, in the UK and giving people that kind of band experience or DJ equipment or whatever and that experience to actually make music. And I feel like that's kind of the missed opportunity. You could have brought emerging artists, but together with the ability to create in one kind of place.
1: You know, Farhan, it's interesting you say that because Virgin Record Store's premise was about being a lifestyle retail destination. So it wasn't just about being a record store, but it was about creating a place or meeting place or gathering point for people or music files or audio files to meet and listen to records together. It wasn't just about dashing in, picking up an album for a gift or a, or a gift voucher, but about sitting, scanning through the shelves, like you say, and leaving with a piece there which is a part of, of something that you really
0: have invested your time and, and effort into. Yeah, and we could turn around and, and talk a lot about the digital side of things as well and how digital has probably had a enormous impact on the kind of closing of all of these record shops. And sure, you know, we can talk a lot about how HMV and Virgin and others maybe didn't invest as much as they probably should have into digital, but I think the whole kind of streaming and you know kind of whether it's Napster or whether it's Spotify, we could probably go into into a lot of depth. And maybe we should save that for a future episode. But I do think the lack of investment into digital and marrying the digital with the uh, with the offline in personal experience was also another missed opportunity for a lot of these brands. So I love that you say that because it's all about the experience factor. Now
1: HMV and Virgin Records, they used to actually invite artists to come in and perform live concerts. We're all very familiar with with record signings, but they would have, you know, you'd have the Beyonces and Lady Gagas, and and you know prior to that, other artists would come in and perform live concerts, created a spectacle. People wanted to come and 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 listen and see, and that would also encourage people to to purchase CDs. But that's missing. I love PlayStation 2's slogan was, you know, live in your world, play in ours. You're competing for share of experience and and the record stores, almost their vision or the value proposition became distorted as on on the onset of digital and as, you know, electronics became front and center, I guess, with the the move into mobile, et cetera. Doug Putman, who runs the Canadian retailer Sunrise Records, they bought HMV and, and he made the decision to close 27 of those stores he wants to personally guarantee a change and how he envisions doing so is by bringing back the live music experience Mm -hmm. and focusing on vinyl
0: yeah i mean if if doug putman or any of his staff are listening maybe we we can kind of brainstorm a couple of ideas i mean one of the things that that's kind of critical to me is kind of giving new and emerging artists a venue a channel an opportunity to explore and to distribute their kind of music, right? So imagine if you could have like a sign-up sheet, right? And people could come in and work on turntables for an hour, right? And then you could have a recording of that kind of mix, right? That's not something that's totally easy for anybody to, to get in their own home. And if you could distribute that, On a Sunrise Records or an HMV's kind of digital distribution, I think they could have a really kind of competitive framing against something like a SoundCloud or a SongKick or something like that. The merging of, you know, instead of being the lonely guitarist with your hat out in front of Oxford Circus Tube, hoping that somebody kind of gives you a pound, imagine knowing that you can publish and distribute that live recording on a record store's website, and people can come and see you for that hour or even 20 minutes performing live in that environment. In the same way that we do book readings, Right, where a famous artist will come in and kind of sign their books. It'd be great to actually experience new artists. Uh, a friend of mine who I used to work with in, in the social media company Pure Index, um, he his wife tells this great story about how she was in a mall somewhere in Suffolk or or somewhere like that, and a young Ed Sheeran was playing the guitar with one of his first CDs, with his mother kind of standing nearby, kind of helping him, probably driving him to and from the mall. And it's like, where does that artist go, right? Like now, yeah, they can still play in a mall, but it's a real missed opportunity for some of these record stores to be able to enable that kind of artistic and creative experience. I wish they had done more on that side.
1: It's such a pity that they've deviated away from that. And I just hope and and wish that that experience is brought back. And, And who knows, we may see a resurgence of the record store, but for me there are multiple factors at play here so let's just break it down you know to keep keeping it simple at the time you had product constraints so typically the way that an album was formulated and you can hear more about that in our first episode is that it would be two tracks and the rest are essentially fillers so a couple of radio hits and then a couple b sides from a packaging point of view it was typically a, a plastic cover and what was what was cool was uh, I was going through my father's vinyl collection a couple of years ago and he had the original copy of Rolling Stones Sticky Fingers album which actually had the the real zipper on mm. the on the pant, on the, the pair of jeans uh, controversial and I think it's actually worth quite a bit of money now but that's
0: unique mm. it makes people go hey like that's pretty cool controversial <laughs> yeah I mean it's that experience of the physical right like I remember when we held I think it was my my mother-in-law's 60th birthday And we dug through and found all of her old vinyl. And we had like Simon and Garfunkel and old Beatles albums and stuff. And we put those as displays, right? Because we were quite proud that she had these records. You know, we thought like holding them in our hands, it felt like holding a bit of history in your hands. And I feel like that's kind of gone away with kind of some of the streaming and kind of losing the full almost 360 degree art form of making music. I agree.
1: And you see 30 Seconds to Mars with their most recent release in Q1 of, of last year, which is 2018, they released a series of covers to try and, and recreate that experience. And it's particularly prevalent in the South Korean music market where they release a variety of different covers of an album and people purchase CDs. But, but you know, in those markets in particular, the investment on the fan side is very different to Western markets. But, but kind of Wrapping all of that up together is albums were also challenged in terms of price because mm. people felt that they were overpriced for the quality of content that they were delivering. And then you combine that with the lack of experience or the experiential effect of the, the place where you were buying the album at the record store and it actually is just a, a concoction for disaster, a recipe for disaster.
0: Yeah, I mean, the margins would get affected, right? Because you had kind of the physical store, you had staff, you had, you know, kind of electricity and utilities to actually manage that, right? So all of that has to be priced into the average, actual kind of uh, retail side to actually ensure that the, the music store made any money uh, off the back of these albums. And at the same time, you know, the CD was probably a little bit cheaper to produce. The um, quality was probably similar, if not better, in some cases. But it's funny how, you know, we're going into this kind of like hipster world of enjoying uh, vinyl a little bit more, right? So you've gotten, you've seen kind of some some interesting statistics in terms of how vinyl is still quite prevalent when it comes to the physical side as well, right? I think you know we're seeing that that vinyl has not necessarily kind of blown away the numbers, but it is kind of increasing, and we are seeing more vinyl sales uh, in the market. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So. Historically, vinyl was purchased for the artwork. Tapes or, or cassettes were, were purchased for convenience and CDs were purchased by the wealthy. Now, the RIAA has issued a report this year which shows that vinyl is set to outsell CDs for the first time since 1986 and that CDs are dying two times faster whilst vinyl sales are growing. Now, as a side note, I'm an avid CD collector, so I actually purchase CDs, I keep them sealed,
0: because you know, it's becoming- You keep them sealed? I keep them sealed. With the intention that, do you think they're an investment? Do you think that they'll grow in value, or is it more just a personal collection? I think both, both for me. I'm finding it increasingly difficult to find specific CDs or
1: certain artists. So for me, it would be great one day. Some people like to have bookshelves. For me, it's a massive CD collection, all these unique finds it's the same
0: theory can be applied to the cassette yeah I mean in my case what I remember doing and what I still do well no I I don't do it anymore because I haven't bought a CD in a long time but I used to especially as somebody who moves from destination to destination keeping those CDs was a really difficult challenge so what we did was we broke up the plastic cases took out the CDs took out the album artwork and put them into an album of CDs. So we have our ah. hundreds of CDs in an album and you know there's a bit of you know kind of conflict in the household around who bought this CD first, <laughs> right? There's some CDs that my wife kind of is 100% positive that she is the one who contributed that CD to our household CD collection. And there are others which ha- I am 100% sure and there's stuff in between, right? We're like, whose CD was that first? The Usher track, you know, the Usher first uh, My Way CD. Was that uh, a your album, my album? And And I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of who owned which CDs, but having moved so many times over the last 10 years, as a collective, we've had to still keep our CD collection, but you can't travel with that much kind of plastic, and and moving from home to home was was quite difficult.
1: That makes a lot of sense. For myself, most of my CDs sit at home in storage. I have a couple new ones that I'll bring back when when I do when I do go home on occasion. What is interesting though is that, particularly in the film industry, there's this uh, kind of emergence of this. Market for Blu ray DVDs. Yeah. Because it's becoming increasingly difficult to find certain titles on actual in, in hard format, despite the fact that there's a streaming era and you have your Netflixes and every and your
0: other YouTubes and your Amazon primes and whatever else. Exactly. So
1: that same use case could be applied to the CD industry, the music industry as well. Vinyls, you know, we mentioned that vinyl is set to outsell CDs. However, vinyls are still a relatively small percentage of overall music purchases. It's only around
0: 4%. Yeah, and I don't think this is a new thing, right? Like when it comes to, um, you know, kind of getting the physical product in your home, right? That's that's not a, a new experience. I remember, I think I was telling you about this earlier, Columbia Records used to have this music club type kind of distribution model where you would get a catalog or you would get an ad to buy, you know, 10, 10 CDs, for a pound or a dollar. And then you would suggest, you'd you'd select the 10 that you wanted, you'd ship them up, they'd send you 10 CDs, you would have only paid a dollar, but now you had a subscription service. So you had to buy another 10 CDs over the next year to fulfill your contact, contract obligation. And that was an innovative distribution model, but it still competed with the record store at home or in the physical world, and you would still get people going to the record shop. So the streaming side, isn't 100% the only reason why we've seen the decline of sales, right? And as we've been talking about earlier, vinyl may still be popular, but when it comes to overall distribution, it's making up a small percentage of how people are actually engaging with music.
1: Yes, so when I was 20, I thought of this solution where because the streaming era was becoming increasingly prevalent and the industry was continually in decline, that to create the experience and create the change, to get people back into the record store, the biggest issue at the time was the quality of music that was actually being put out. So if you gave people, a, a, you created an experience which enabled people to select the tracks that they wanted, to build their own compilations at the store, they can go down to the record store for the spectacle and the experience uh, that it represents bolting on artist appearances, live concerts. But it's not just about letting somebody go to a touchscreen or an iPad or whatever, clicking 15 tracks of iTunes or Spotify and then burning it onto a disc. But it's about making that that experience sexy and memorable and, and, and making somebody wants to go there and do that. And there, there are many ways in which somebody could do that. I just, it always sits with me. It's like a pet peeve for me. Why the
0: record stores never thought of incorporating something so simple? It's funny you mentioned that because that just brought to mind the fact that Apple now owns Shazam, right? And that whole experience of being able to Shazam a track, you have to be somewhere where that track is being played and you don't actually recognize music, right? It'll be interesting to see if Apple takes its retail footprint, its actual physical locations in the Apple stores, marries it maybe with some of the experience factor and some of the ownership of the digital channels, whether it's your Beats, your Beats Radio, plus your Shazam, to actually make a physical experience kind of work when it comes to music. I think they're probably sitting quite pretty because they have the hardware solutions. People go into their stores for that experience. They have the software solutions. They have their Shazam's, they have their Beats radios. I feel like they're probably in a very unique position because they also have the hosting environment, right? Like I remember hearing that Riza from the Wu-Tang Clan was doing a class on how to make music at the Apple Store. So it'll be really interesting to see how Apple pot- potentially evolves into being the home of music in a physical place.
1: It's crazy. And the record stores are to blame. They've got themselves to blame because they moved away from their core focus, which was the music. Now Virgin Megastore has... The, the average customer at the Virgin Mega store in the Middle East spends around 45 minutes inside. Now, obviously, it's market dependent, and they've been able to reposition their lifestyle, retail destination, and they group their products thematically. You know, they've moved away from the music, but that hasn't worked in other Western markets. I'm sure you'll remember Tower Records. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Now, for those of you who haven't watched it, there's a, a film or documentary out called All Things Must Pass. It's on the rise and fall of Tower Records. What's really cool about that is they interviewed Dave Grohl, who was the, the the drummer for Nirvana and the lead singer of the Foo Fighters. He said that he went and worked at Tower Records because it was the only place that would hire him because of his haircut. Uh, they had they had no dress code. Maybe I will fall into that bracket. Um, but Tower Records was uh, you know booming from 1960 to 2006 uh, when they filed for bankruptcy and and liquidation. And what was great about it was it was. It was an experience in itself. You know, people who worked at record stores were interesting people. I'm sure, Farhan, you've watched Empire Records.
0: Yeah, I mean, the whole kind of angle of the music store in media, right? And I think you could draw the parallels with like blockbuster video and music, because Quentin Tarantino talks about how he worked at a video store as well, right? So it's not unique to music, where artists want to go to that physical space and find other people like them in that physical environment. Whether it's the movies like Empire Records and you know All Things Must Pass and other, uh, I'm sure there's other movies where the record shop plays a pivotal role in terms of the storyline because you get like-minded people in those experiences, sharing those experiences together. And we don't have the same kind of physical experience now where you can bring together people who are like-minded, who can actually share and talk and understand and actually experience the music together.
1: Music brings people together. You don't just see it at record stores. You saw it even in Detroit in 1993, where Eminem used to do his rap battles. It was at the hip hop shop, which was originally a clothing store. People congregated. Why? Because music brought them together. It was a common interest. And you're finding that aside from small concert venues today, at least I'm talking about London, maybe even in New York, what? How? How do you, do musos really come together with the, aside from finding a maybe an event brights event that's once in a blue moon?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think sure digital collaboration in terms of whether it's Reddit channels or other uh, online um, you know kind of music forums are one kind of replacement. And yes, I think they absolutely bring people from different geographies together. But the physical experience of two people in a room talking about music, flipping through, not knowing where, and kind of that serendipity of, oh, I'm going to flick this record, and the next record I see is going to spark a different conversation. All right, Dario, tell me about an interesting company that you've seen over the last week or so.
1: Okay, so the company spotlight today is on a company called Instrumental, which was founded here in London. And it's an AR scouting platform. So think of it as hyper personalization for music scouting. So, so, what do I mean by that? The business uses data science to discover, profile, and track the performance of emerging independent
0: music stars in today's content economy. So, if I'm a new and upcoming artist, how do I get myself onto Instrumental? Basically,
1: when a new artist, whether they're independent or not, puts themselves up on the streaming platform, let's use Spotify to keep things simple, they, you know people nowadays create lots of playlists. So if you're lucky enough to get onto a playlist track or you know you've, your content's up there and it's getting a lot of views, Typically, most people might not be able to find you if a playlist curator hasn't necessarily kind of kept you on their radar. So what instrumental does is they ingest playlist and listening data and then monitor millions of tracks and artists each day to track audience growth or decline, and they forecast the future potential of those artists to facilitate and, essentially being
0: a a digital A&R for labels. Interesting, so instead of the A&R going to a dive bar and seeing a band perform, or getting kind of a lot of demo records and then having to listen to those demo CDs or cassettes or whatever it might be, they're instead kind of mining the data to actually see if the independent artists are getting enough listens to actually warrant them being brought onto a label exactly so it's talent
1: matching not just for labels but maybe for brand partnerships for media and just
0: the wider music business in general and is this really for you know kind of the the bulk and the medium type selling artists because if i'm a for example a chance the rapper or somebody who can actually make my name independently why would i why would i still want to be on a label yeah
1: it's a good question that you ask and I think each and every individual has maybe personal preferences for that. I mean, to challenge you, Mm. Lil Pump was, you know, we've talked about him time and time again, despite not liking his music, he was, uh, he boomed on SoundCloud Mm. and still signed to a label because he wanted that promotional push. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, kind of this discovery tools for bringing artists, and labels together will kind of parallel the evolution of the label itself, right? Like, you probably don't need the, whatever, tens of people in A&R in a geography, but instead you could leverage a platform like this to keep the label lean. So what the platform
1: also allows you to do is it puts the artist in a position of power where before the label was, was in that position. So I know Jimmy Iovine offered Macklemore a contract which inevitably Macklemore got 7%. Whereas now, if an artist is able to prove, hey, label, you know, I've actually been able to perform pretty darn well by myself and you want to sign me. Okay, so, so now you're going to account for my terms huh. as well. An interesting documentary that you should watch as well is Artifact by 30 Seconds to Mars. That breaks down how a 360 deal is packaged and typically how the relationship between labels and artists um, develops.
0: That's interesting because I think one of the things that's really difficult as a new and emerging artist is knowing what your actual value is to the label. So I think if, if a platform can take some of the negotiating power and almost even out the playing field, that could be a real benefit to an artist, right? Like understanding what the actual value is of being on that label and at the same time understanding your own value to that label to ensure that you don't come up with um, an agreement that favors one side over the other. So around 45% of
1: artists are independent, Mm -hmm. and that's consistently growing. And the DIY or self-releasing artist sector is the fastest-growing area of the music business. It's estimated to be worth around
0: $1.5 billion in five years from recorded music alone. So tell me a little bit more about what the platform actually does in terms of the artist's kind of catalog, and how exactly does an artist, or as a consumer, would I use instrumental at all, or is it mostly uh, a business to business where I'm considering an artist as a business on its own and the label as a business? Is there a consumer angle as well? Cool. So the way that it
1: works is around 7 million tracks are uploaded to Spotify each year. Instrumental focuses on powerful playlists as an indication of, of high potential artists. An influential playlist typically has around 10,000 followers. and. Um, it essentially will ingest that playlist data and monitor those tracks to
0: produce outcomes. So there's no like consumer like I as a as an individual who's not a musician and who's not part of a label would I interact with instrumental at all?
1: You wouldn't. No.
0: Okay. So they typically
1: have three pricing points. Their instrumental indie will give you full access to the platform. There's the instrumental platform which has advanced features where you can customize your platform view. It will give you notifications for new artists and you can work with a special projects team as well as a mobile app. And then there's the instrumental API where you just pull data to your own platform. Now, when it comes to their clients, they typically work with record labels because it saves them time and money to scout music publishers who will identify unpublished artists, sync agencies by matching
0: brands and creative briefs, live promoters and agents, as well as just brands, it's a really interesting proposition. I mean, not being from a label myself or an artist myself, um, you know, kind of, I'm not quite sure I feel the fundamental problem they're trying to solve. But it's interesting to see that actually um, labels and artists are coming together on a platform like Instrumental, and hopefully that might kind of actually even out the playing field.
1: Yeah, I think it's something predominantly trying to solve a pain point for for labels essentially. The record labels and publishing groups, they have, well, they're trying to keep up with the time. Some are, are, are at the sharp end more than others. But considering Instrumentals' extensive list of clients, you know, they've got the likes of Live Nation, they work with Cobalt, Sony, UMG, and, you know, all the, all the big guys in the industry, I believe there is some value to be drawn from that for their client partners. But for the customer itself, for the artist itself, I do tend to agree with you there that most of them are actually able to to
0: develop their careers alone pretty darn well. So Dario, tell me, I mean, how have you kind of come across this company? What's the background of the company? And um what what are the what's the company stage? So you mentioned that it's positioning with brands, it's come out from labels stuff. Is it active right now? Or are people actually able to kind of see instrumental and gather if they are an upcoming artist or if they're working at a label? Um, would they be able to access instrumental right now?
1: Instrumental is fully live. It's available. I think that they're trying to expand their footprint in the U.S. further. You know, predominantly New York and and L.A. being where the the music hotspots of. Of the states and and, and, and uh, uh, Texas, of course, can't <laughs> forget them.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I heard a podcast. Uh, I think it was this week where it talked about actually country music being probably the most historical music in the US having kind of one of the, the longest histories and you know kind of from a sales perspective it might be something I know neither of us is really a big country music head but seeing it's how artists like Taylor Swift uh, Billy Ray Cyrus and others are kind of influencing the pop and hip hop cultures now and you're seeing kind of country and western music coming into that space it's interesting that they've kind of also I'm sure they're they're probably doing stuff with Nashville and other kind of country music hubs. It's interesting to see that as an emerging space for new creativity as well in technology.
1: Nashville is nicknamed Music City USA because it's the epicenter of country and western music. And we could talk about this for ages. You know, Old Town Road, Little Nas X. Uh, you know, TikTok explosion. Exactly. Who, who's the other guy with Get Up? You know, that song that you kept on? Oh, God.
0: Yeah, Blank, Blanco Brown's Get Up was was the one that you were talking about. Yeah, the, he's definitely one of these other kind of emerging, almost kind of artists that are taking country and Western music and merging it with kind of more uh, established, almost urban music as well. All right. We're recording this on a Friday, so that means there was a new Music Friday playlist dropped, as well as a bunch of new releases this week on Spotify and other streaming channels. Dario, what's caught your ear this week? It's a bit of a throwback Friday, actually.
1: We've seen new albums from Akon coming out of the woodworks with an album called El Negrito, which is a, a Latin album It got a couple features there with uh, Mr. Worldwide,
0: Mr. Pitbull. So, does, I don't know if you've listened to it yet, but does Akon still do his Convict music drops? He doesn't. The <laughs> album for me, uh, I mean,
1: I stopped listening after the first track. I think he's going to try and come back with more of a, a hip-hop release. He, he had a, a three-disc album called Stadium that was meant to come out, each one focusing on a specific genre of music, one on EDM, one on hip-hop, and, and one on more Latin-inspired music. But uh, that failed make its way on the commercial stage we've also seen albums from the darkness called Easter is cancelled they their last record i think was in 2005 one-way ticket to hell and back and then dido
0: has released a, a single called just because and eminem's not featuring on this track nope what else have you seen i think you mentioned some new travis scott right have you heard the new travis scott what did you think of that
1: yeah, Travis Scott's Highest in the Room was released today. For me, Travis Scott's a bit of a hit or miss. I don't know if it's a generational thing. I don't really like the auto-tune too much. I think uh, I had enough of it with T-Pain and then Future jumped on that bandwagon and a bit maxed out. We've seen Camilla Cabello release Cry For Me, Jesse Rise released Far Away, and
0: Halsey actually released a track called Clementine. Halsey's a really interesting artist to me because, I mean, I don't think there's been like a Halsey album. But she's continued to release new music in almost these kind of surprise drops. And I do really like her style. And I'm curious to know whether she's going to retrospectively kind of pull things together as an album or continue this journey of the occasional music drop. What do you think? So there's this rumor of a new
1: album. Historically, she's released two albums, but you probably wouldn't even know that it's her, and they were in 2015 and 16. Her, her new strategy seems to be working out far better for her. It seems like it's uh, financially viable. It's got a, a good amount of brand partnerships. I think there's one we saw on the tube with DKNY. Oh, that's right, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't really like the Clementine song. It's something that seems to be more of a personal record for her. But you know what?
0: I, I dig what she's doing and she's got to just keep rocking it. So, going back to your point about uh, older artists or, you know, kind of artists from 10, 15 years ago, has it really been that long for Dido? Possibly. Um, you know, kind of coming back. There's a track on the New Music Friday playlist from an artist called Summer Walker uh, that says it's featuring or with Usher, but it's really the original Usher um, Make Me Want to Leave the One I'm With. Uh, track that's kind of layered on top, and she's singing on top of that track. Um, I, I think that's a great track. Give that one a listen. Um, there's a new Justin Bieber track. So I'm kind of leaning into my pop and R&B. The Biebs. <laughs> the Biebs. The, that's my Canadian mention for the week. Uh, you've got Justin Bieber on a new Dan and Shay track uh, that's come out. Um, I'm interested to hear the new uh, Sabrina... Claudio track featuring Zayn these are back-to-back weeks where Zayn formerly of One Direction is featuring on top of another more independent or emerging artist so I'm kind of curious to see whether that's a trend that continues uh, I'm also listening to there's a new Wale track uh, a new Majid Jordan another fellow Torontonian who's part of that Drake click uh, he's got a new song out uh, as well as Churches I'm, I'm a big kind of uh, not necessarily in the closet, because now I've exposed it, but <laughs> I am a, a Church's fan. Uh, and I do like their music, and I think their new track is pretty good as well. I think it's probably worth to also mention that Danny Brown
1: for the Hip Hop Heads released his album produced by Q-Tip called You Know What I'm Saying. I, again, don't really like Danny Brown that much. He's managed by Paul Rosenberg. I think the last kind of standout record he did and, and some of you are going to hate me for this. I think it was Detroit versus Everybody back on, on Shady 15 in 2014. But Farhan, what, what is your guilty pleasure this week? What, you, what are you listening
0: to? So my guilty pleasure actually is a disclosure track featuring The Weeknd uh, called Nocturnal. Um, it's kind of a, a breakaway from the usual The Weeknd uh, tracks, but I'm giving that uh, a lot of love. There's also a track... Kind of, you mentioned Halsey. I'm still kind of digging Graveyard and some of the older Halsey tracks. Uh, Those are some of my kind of guilty pleasures. And like I mentioned before, the Mark Ronson new album, the Black Coffee featuring Usher, those are still kind of tracks that that I can't get enough of. I
1: like that you you keeping it you keeping it authentic and eclectic. That's the important part. For myself, I've kind of. Kept it to one artist this week, which is The Game. Oh, really? The standout track for me is 92 Bars off his 1992 album. He tries to take it back to the old school West Coast feel. He's got a new album dropping on the 19th of October, so we can kind of do a bit of an artist spotlight on him then. Some fascinating stuff around the time the documentary got released. He's uh, maybe not the best writer, and uh, his his songs can sound quite generic if you listen to a lot of his catalog. But nonetheless, he's got the the gangster rap feel and the vibe where if you just want to feel like a champ,
0: go listen to the game. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of Middle School Music. Um, You can now find us on Twitter on at MDLSKL underscore music. You can find me on Twitter at at Farhan Lalji. Dario, where can the good listeners find you? So you can find me on Twitter
1: on at Dario underscore Devet with a W. You can also find a middle school playlist on Spotify. That's M D L S K L, where we'll be placing the tracks that that we like. And you know, the idea for the first the first playlist we've put out is really taking you through the time machine of hip-hop. So from old school right through to a bit of that new school feel, some high energy and winding you down towards the end. We're going to mix that up on a weekly basis, throw in some of the new tracks and guilty pleasures we're
0: listening to. And who knows, maybe we'll do some subsets in the future. You should be able to record or find the podcast now on iTunes and hopefully on Spotify by the time you listen to this. We'll be on hopefully both channels. We'll continue to add new distribution channels and hopefully you can find us wherever you're listening to podcasts. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you soon. Ciao. Bye.